0: You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Uh, before we start, I just want to lead us in prayer over this time of the preaching of the Word this morning. If you please bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, you um, you caused us to be born again by the preaching of the Word, the good news. All Flesh is like grass, and its fl- glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And yet, Lord, you have caused us to be born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed through the word of God, so that we would not wither, fall like the flower, but be born again and raised to new life. And I pray, just thank you and praise you for that miracle. The lives of all of us here who have already repented and believed and trusted in Christ and been grafted into your kingdom. I pray that that same miracle would happen among us this morning in the hearts of all who are present, young and old, that they would be born again through the scattering of the sea that is the gospel. May that shine through clearly this morning. Amen. We're going to be in James chapter 1, if you want to open that up. If you have the James journal, uh, it has the text right there, kind of on the left, and a spot for you to, like, jot down any notes or things that hit you particularly. Um... As well, so if you want to just use your James journal, you could use that. It's got the text in it, and we're going to be in James 1 this morning. As you're opening up to that, I'm also going to kind of prime your brain to receive the word. We've done this before. I want you to think out a question, answer it in your head, and I'm going to ask you to kind of hold it and use this thought throughout the morning. So, what are out of one or two sins? Uh, that you feel like you, you continually struggle with, you easily fall into? What are one or two temptations that you feel like you, you are uniquely tempted towards? Give you a second to think. What's one or two sins that you feel like you, are e- you easily fall into, maybe more than others, or that's unique to you in your situation right now? I want you to hold that answer in your head and we'll come back to that. So if you look at James 1, we're going to be in verses 12 to 15. I'm going to read that and then we'll jump right in this morning. James 1, verses 12 to 15. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Right away, those of you who maybe went, if you're familiar with it, or you went through the Sermon on the Mount with us, probably hear some echoes of that text right there in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For, when he has stood the test... He will receive the crown of, li- crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. James uses the exact same formula. Blessed is the four results that Jesus used to open up his sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. He had began his ministry by proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And he starts the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7, to off with these, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And so, what James is really doing here is kind of hyperlinking this passage into Jesus' text. He's trying to get you, you're, you're supposed to go, oh yeah, that sounds like the Beatitudes. This is, this is the 10th Beatitude. It's not in Matthew, it's, it's over here in James. If you remember, the Beatitudes kind of defined the kingdom citizen. Jesus was explaining, these are the kinds of people who will come to and, and inhabit my kingdom. People who are meek, people who hunger and thirst for righteousness, people who seek peace. And James is now saying also people who stand the test. The kingdom citizen will be someone who remains steadfast under trial. And in that attribute, steadfastness, you'll also be hearing echoes of another sermon, which came three weeks ago when I preached through James 1, 2 to 4. If your eyes just glance up at the top of the page, it reads like this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So this is the theme of trials again. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So you might be asking, gee, Scott, do you just get to preach the same sermon again? And there's definitely going to be some things that tie together, and we're going to see, Josh already kind of mentioned this when he opened up the series on James, that that's kind of how the whole book works, is James is just going to spiral back around over and over again. On some of these same themes, these same ideas, using these same trigger words. And each time he's building off what he said before, but also developing it and advancing it in a way that's new and applying it in a new direction, perhaps. And today's text is going to provide like a very peculiar parallel, you maybe already seen it, to verses one, two to four. So let's recap those verses really quick. At the beginning of the letter, James starts off by busting this myth. This myth that all trials are bad. Anything that causes you pain, discomfort, suffering is is inherently bad and evil. That's that's, uh, kind of a myth our culture tends to believe. And instead, James basically says trials could be entirely inconvenient. They could bring out very intense suffering. But at the same time, if you're in Christ and you persevere through them with joy, they're actually doing something for you. They're building your faith. They're testing it. And just like a chunk of iron ore, which you put into a crucible and heat up, comes out, purer and stronger metal, the same way a Christian that goes through a trial comes out with a purer and stronger faith, and the resulting is that they become more and more complete, lacking in nothing. And so let's take that context and bring it here now into verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Nothing new there in terms of the standing the test, testing your faith, persevering with faith, and receiving a crown of life. James now kind of adds that on as the fifth step. But James kind of has a unique word change here that maybe you can hear if I set it up this way. You would maybe expect him to say, he will receive the crown of life if he, based only on verses 2 to 4, would say maybe stays steadfast. You receive the crown of life if he endures will receive the crown of life for those who have faith in God. But he doesn't. He says, the crown of life belongs to those who love God. So if the model, the process is, number one, a trial comes into your life. Your faith is, te- your faith is tested. You grow in endurance. You become complete. And you receive the crown of life. What James has now done is, by saying God promises the crown of life to those who love him, is he's inserted love back into the cycle somewhere here. Love also belongs. Nothing James said earlier is wrong. It's just incomplete. Love also belongs right here. And he's setting up this for the, the, the verses that follow, that somehow love is also inherent in this idea of faith. We say we have faith in God or our faith is tested. It's not enough to say, though this is true, that we mentally assent to some facts about Jesus. We talked about this this morning in Sunday school. The gospel has some historical claims, some facts, that it claims that Jesus was the Son of God, that he died on the cross for your sins, and that he was rose, rose again from the dead and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. You need to believe those things in order to be a Christian. But James will later say, even the demons believe that. So it's not enough to say that our faith is placed in these mental facts, but also James is saying that somehow love is part of this attribute of faith that causes someone to endure to become perfected, and to receive the crown of life. According to James now, implicit in faith is love for God. Our affections are inextricably tied up with this idea of faith for James. And so now James is going to develop this new addition by applying it to temptations and desire and sin. And before we go on to the next two verses, we really want to sit here for a second more, let me ask you this question. Do you love God? Don't, they'll just go, oh yeah, yep, sure. But like, do you love him? Not, uh, do you believe that, that you love God? But do you really like feel that in in your affections? Are your affections drawn towards him just as my son's affections are drawn towards culverts, Or just as, you know, my affections are drawn towards my wife or to the mountains or to fishing or something else that you really love? Like, obviously you could point to this in your life and say, I love that. Are your affections drawn towards God in the same way? The psalmist Uh, in 63.3 says, the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. Do you really feel that? David also writes, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than dwell in the tents of the wicked. And he also says, um, I wrote it down. Good job I wrote it down. Better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. Does that hit you as true at a deeper level than just mental ascent, that you really love God with these affections here? These are bold claims from David, but they're not hyperbole. They're not hype. Like, he really means this, that he, he spent 15 years running around in the wilderness, living in caves, running for his life, and what, what allowed him to endure that trial were all these affections that we hear coming up out of the Psalms. His love for God, his trust in God in a sense that allowed him to persevere persevere through 15 years of intense, severe loss and trial. Does your heart sing with those truths as well? Would you want to go to heaven if Christ wasn't there? To be reunited maybe with all your past family members, to no longer have pain and suffering, but to not have Christ? Would that that still satisfy you? Really evaluate your heart in this moment here. When you think about your relationship to God, do you love him? That's going to be key for persevering in these trials. If what I'm saying sounds foreign to you if all you know is God is that big angry guy in the sky who's going to crush you for your sin. If all you know of God is the God, the cosmic butler who you call upon whenever you need something. If all you know of God as that guy who just doesn't want you to have any fun, then sincerely if, if that's how you know God, can you truly say that you love him? The way you answer that question is going to determine whether trials and temptations strengthen your faith Build your endurance and lead to life or results in desires that lead to sin, which lead to death. And James explores this more in verses 13 to 15. And so just as we had a process that went from trial all the way through to crown of life, James is now going to set up a parallel process that leads in the opposite direction towards death. So watch for that parallel structure in the text as I read it and then we'll explain it and kind of jump into it. Look at verses 13 to 15 now. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Verse 13 is where James switches from talking about trials to temptations. But there's an interesting play on word there in the Greek. In Greek, the word for trial is perasmas. And in Greek, the word for temptation is perasmas. So your English translation makes kind of a judgment call for you as to when he's changed his topic. But it's not so clear in the Greek. I think that's actually very intentional. James wants you to wrestle with this because you often wrestle with this as well. When trials come into our lives, it is often a temptation to think, as he's already mentioned verse 13, that God is the one who is, who is tempting us. He's trying to get, get me down. He's trying to pull the rug out from under me and cause me to sin and, and, and get at me. We we're tempted to believe that. He wants the double meaning to stop you and make you think. And so Douglas Moo, he mentions this in a commentary. I thought it was really insightful. That maybe like a better translation of verse 13 would be, Let no one say when he's tested, so we know those are going to come, God is tempting me. Here's what he writes. No solid line should be drawn between verses 12 and 13, as if James just drops the topic of testing to take up the issue of temptation. His concern, rather, is to help his readers resist the temptation that comes along with the trial. For every trial brings temptation. Financial difficulty can tempt us to question God's providence in our lives. The death of a loved one can cause us to question God's love. The suffering of the righteous poor and the ease of the wicked rich can tempt us to question God's justice or even his existence. And thus, testing almost always includes temptation, and temptation itself is a trial. James doesn't want you to believe that when you face a trial, God is trying to get you to sin. Sometimes our temptations are just so strong, or maybe we struggle with a temptation for so long that we think it's God who's who's put us there in that. We wonder if God's trying to trip us up. But James reassures us, that's not what's happening. Here's what's really happening. Look now at verses 14 to 15 with me. Don't blame God for the temptation. We already know God brings the trial. Trials come from without, but James is going to say temptation comes from within. Look at verses 14 15 here. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So, just as Moo said, every trial comes with its own temptations. And here, James is pulling back the curtain to try to show us that it, how temptation works. These are like the mechanics, the inner workings of how temptation works. First, it starts with luring and enticing us with our own desires. And the metaphor here, it comes from what? It comes from fishing. A good fisherman has to know which bait works for which fish. Worms for bluegill, flies for trout, rotten shrimp soaked in cow blood wrapped in pantyhose for catfish. Okay? Just as there are as many baits as there are fish, there are as many desires as there are people. The word desire doesn't always mean like bad desires in the Bible, but here James, I think, very clearly means this idea of your, your fleshly desires for things that are, are created or worldly, right? And it's not that those things are bad, but that they're just not ultimate. They're, direct, they're meant to direct our affections towards something higher. Our loves, our desires are out of whack, and that's, that's really the problem we have as human beings. We don't properly order our loves. In the City of God, Augustine wrote, the good make use of the world in order to enjoy God, and the evil make use of God in order to enjoy the world. That's the essence of sin. Asking God not to rock your boat with trials and just get out of the way so that you can enjoy life on your terms. That's really what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was, a test of life on God's terms, true life and eternal life, or life on your own terms, Adam and Eve. And that, those, those trees are set before us every day and in every trial. There's nothing evil about our desires. It's quite natural to desire food, sex, pleasure, comfort, to desire not to suffer, to desire success. And so the temptation comes when our desires for those created things lead us to then rebel against God and love something else more, harm ourselves, harm our neighbor. It's trusting in something more than we love and trust in him. And it works just like like fishing bait, James says. So imagine you're a salmon. You've just left the Pacific Ocean. You're swimming up Bird Creek, which is just 30 minutes south of Anchorage. It was my favorite fishing spot when I was stationed up there in the army. And when salmon enter the creek, they have like one object in mind, and that is to spawn. That's their, their goal is to get up, upstream to their spawning grounds, spawn, and create the next generation of salmon. Right? So imagine you're a salmon, you're swimming up the creek, right? but swimming is hard. Right? It kind of works up a little bit of, bit of an appetite. And then splash in the water right next to you lands a little glob of salmon roe, bright red, Uh, Those are like salmon eggs that are just kind of stuck together in this like weird mucousy membrane thing. And all of a sudden, temptation. You need to keep heading upstream, but you're also kind of hungry. You'd like to take a bite of those salmon eggs. You also know that fishermen tend to fish from these shorelines. In fact, just yesterday, you saw your buddy George bite onto a glob of juicy-looking salmon eggs and get dragged ashore and ripped out of the water. So you're really feeling this temptation. Oh, is this good for me or not? I don't know. It looks really good. I'd like to take a bite. I need to keep swimming. Spawn, eat. Spawn, eat. And finally, you just, you can't take it anymore. You take the bite. You bite down on that hook and boom, it's game over. That's the metaphor James is using for our temptations. James is describing how sin works. From the outside, God sends a trial our way, and in the midst of the trial, our own desires, not God, our own desires from within lure us away into sin. Temptation always comes from within. I can't tempt you to eat a bowl of gravel if you have no appetite to put rocks in your mouth, right? Temptation has to come from within. I can't tempt you to eat something you don't want, but if I put a bowl of of Lucky Charms or your favorite cereal in front of you, you would eat that right up or you'd at least be tempted to because you desire it. Temptations play to our natural desires, our human instincts. Notice how precise James is here. The temptation itself isn't sinful. The desires themselves aren't sinful. When does the moment of sin come in this chain here? Right, trial comes into our life, causes us, to be tempted, to trust to something else, to love something else, seek an escape out of that trial maybe. No sin yet. We're lured and enticed by our desires. We're still wrestling with it. No sin yet. And then eventually, desire conceives. Kind of switches metaphor here to one of of making a child and giving birth. So just like the fish hasn't really done anything wrong while he thinks about spawn, eat, what he's wrestling with that, He hasn't done anything wrong. So we haven't sinned or done anything wrong while we struggle with temptations. But there is a point during the luring away, during the enticement, where the attractiveness of sin is just too much and we take the bait. Or, to switch metaphors again, desire conceives, that seed of sin is planted in us, it's too late. Eventually, that sin gives birth and if it continues to grow, James says, in verse 15, it leads to death. So I could do a couple more examples, or better yet, you could do a hundred different examples yourself with that sin or temptation I asked you to think about at the beginning, right? I kind of thought through some and I just deleted them. I said, you do this. Apply this, this process to what you thought about right at the beginning of the message. James says, each of us is lured away by our own desires. It's different for every man, woman, and child. Some things are pleasing and attractive to me that wouldn't be attractive to you or your neighbor. So what is it that tends to ensnare you? What tends to lure you away? And now do this. Close your eyes if you need to or look at the ceiling or or whatever. Kind of look below the surface of that desire. Whatever you picked, whatever sin that was. Maybe you're quick to anger. Maybe it's gluttony or abusing alcohol or drugs even, right? Maybe it's a sexual sin. Maybe it's disobedience. Maybe it's lying, Whatever that is, think about it. What's below the surface there? What makes that so attractive to you? What is the, the promise that it's made to you that you wrongly believe in? What benefit or good do you think it's going to deliver to you? You've got to kind of do this gaming, this war gaming with your own sin to get below the surface level to understand that there's a hook beneath that bait. You don't want that. So here's the crucial point. The most important thing James is trying to say to us is that when we're faced with daily trials that bring their own temptations, James has shown us endurance in those trials and victory over that temptation comes down to not just faith, but to love. Victory over temptation and endurance through trials comes down to love. Trials don't just test our faith, they test our loves. And that means the key to fighting temptation is to cultivate a desire and an affection and an attractiveness of who God is over and against those things that lure and entice you away. John 14, 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. What's the secret to keeping commandments? Love. In every temptation that we give into, whether it's pride or greed, lust, envy, gluttony, anger, sloth, whatever it is, Every temptation we give into is evidence of disordered loves, disordered loves. We've ranked them wrongly in our life. Sin always reveals what we love more than God. Do you love your ego or God? Do you love sleeping with your boyfriend or God? Do you love pornography or God? Do you love lying to get out of trouble or God? Do you love money or God? Do you love alcohol or God? Do you love your career or God? Every temptation we give into is evidence of something we have set higher and directed our affections towards other than God, first and foremost. So where are you going to get that kind of love? That seems like if temptations come from within, the help has to come from the outside. Right? How are you going to have your heart transformed so that your loves are in the right order? Who's going to set your desires right so that you can really love God with all your heart, soul, and strength? You're never going to win against temptation. You're never going to stand the test, James is saying. You're never going to receive the crown of life unless your loves are rightly ordered and your affections are directed at God. Well, help has come from the outside. Outside the world, actually. God sent his own son into the world to do just this. Not just to forgive our sins, but to, to, to free us from these affections and redirect them towards what will truly satisfy us. I want to look at one last verse on temptation with you this morning. It's going to be really easy to find. It's in Hebrews 4. Hebrews is the book right before James. So if you flip to the left, like, four pages, you'll find it. Hebrews chapter 4. If you're in the scripture journal, sorry I let you down. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 4. These are verses 14 to 16, all right? Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Sounds like endurance in passing the trial. For we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. This is good news for us this morning. If you've been a Christian for 40 years, struggling with sin for decades, this is good news for you. If you've been a Christian for six months, and you're just realizing all the sin in your life and the temptations that tend to get a hold of you, this is good news for you. If you're not a Christian, this is really, really good news for you if you've never trusted in Christ and pleaded with him to turn you away from your sin and turn your affections towards him, this is good news for you. The Father sent Jesus as the second Adam to restore the human race. Okay? And Jesus did that by living a life of perfect obedience out of love for the Father. Jesus says that in James 15, that I do this, I go to the cross the the next night as he's talking to show the world that I love God. That means oh, pardon me, he died on the cross as a substitute for all who believe in him. And because of that beautiful act of perfect love towards the Father, and because of his totally righteous life, the Father raised him from the dead and seated him in the heavens, where he is now reigning as high king and building his kingdom over all the earth. But he does more than that. He's more than just reigning king and conquering hero. He's also, according to Hebrews 4, a what? He's a great high priest. And that means, that's what a priest does, they can stand before the Father and represent you and I to God. He is, as the writer of Hebrews said, uh, a great high priest. He's so great. He's the perfect fit. Because of what? Look at the logic in the text here. He's able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he has been tempted every way as we are, but without sin. And so, when you feel temptation come upon you, when you are tempted to be lured away and enticed after other things, Jesus is the perfect person to turn to because he knows exactly what you're looking for. When you cry out, help me, he can say, yes, that's right. I know what you're going through. I know it looks so attractive. Don't take the bait. Don't take the bait. I will help you. He makes them the perfect representative towards us to God. Because he has experienced temptation in the same way we have. Somehow, somewhere in there, again, temptation is not a sin. Those desires are not sinful. But somewhere in there, desire gives birth, or sorry, conceives the seed of sin. Right there, that's as far as temptation ever got with Jesus. He always knew how to rightly order his loves and his affections and redirect them towards the Father to persevere on his mission to get to the cross and save us all from hell. And so he's the perfect representative to turn to And this says, we can with confidence draw near to the throne of grace in our time of need. What's your time of need? Right there in that window, those first two steps James has talked about, back in verses 15 and 16. When temptation comes and our desires are luring and enticing us away, that's your time of need. And you don't have to be ashamed to call out to God and say, I'm feeling really tempted right now. Jesus is there to say, yeah, I know know what it feels like. Don't take the bait. We have confidence we can draw near to the throne of grace and receive mercy and power and help in those moments. So we go through trials and we're tempted to sin. This text says Jesus can sympathize with our weaknesses. He can give us the mercy and grace we need to persevere through those, those moments. So do you do that, Christian? Think now back to that sin that you struggled with for maybe a long time, maybe just... Recently, it's cropped up in your life. Think about that temptation that typically lures you away. You're easily given to, you filled in the blank already. Do you do that when that temptation rears its ugly head? When you're tempted, do you cry out to the Savior, help? You're never going to have victory over that sin until you cry out to Jesus for mercy and grace in your time of need. Like a helpless little child, you must come, full of weakness and faith, come to him, Pleading that he would redirect your desires, not just take this away, take this away, get rid of this desire right now. That's not enough. He needs to direct your desires towards something more beautiful, more satisfying, and more glorious. And that is Himself. And He can do that. Ask Him to make Himself beautiful in your eyes, far more beautiful and satisfying than anything sin can offer. And you can do that with 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 confidence when you're tempted. You don't have to be ashamed of that. You can go to the throne of grace that Jesus sits on and ask for help. Maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you're sitting there realizing that your life is full of sin and temptation. And you just cave to them all. You don't have any power to stand up to sin. You take the bait every time. Listen to me, poor and needy sinner. It, there was a time in my life, too, when I had no power to stop sinning. In fact, it seemed like a lot of fun at the time. But it always left me feeling empty and guilty. And it wasn't until I turned to Christ that I received power to have a transformed life. Not because of anything I done, but because of what he did and the spirit who he sends to give us power to make that change, to be conformed more and more to his life. And so if this is you, whether you're young, old, man, woman, child, doesn't matter, you don't have to be a slave to sin. You can be set free. You don't have to wreck your life with the consequences of your sin over and over and over again. You don't have to bear the burden of sin and shame and guilt that temptation, desire, sin, ultimately leading to death, brings. God has provided a redeemer, a hero, who's willing to take your sin and shame and give you a a new heart, new desires. This was the entire premise of the new covenant, that Israel was not able to keep God's law. Why? Because they never circumcised their hearts. The problem wasn't here, it was right here. And so the promise of the new covenant was, I will give you a new heart and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my ways and observe my commandments. That's what makes the new covenant new, that we can receive this transformation in power. So, if this is you, if you're, you've never trusted in Christ before, run to the Savior. If you wait until you're better, you will never come at all. You've got to come now. For all of us, I leave us with two exhortations. One of them I've already gotten to. And the first is, When you're tempted, where should you run to? Run to the throne of grace so that you may receive mercy and power in your time of need. How do you do that? Through prayer. You draw near to Jesus, draw near to his throne. Imagine the picture of a throne. That's where an authority sits, a king who can issue orders to angels and armies and set up everything for your favor. Run to him and ask for grace and mercy. Ask him to lead you not into temptation but deliver you from evil. Do you think Jesus taught his disciples to pray a prayer God never intends to answer? No, this comes straight back to the Sermon on the Mounts. We go to God and ask him every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, God, in my time of meet, need, when I'm being lured and enticed away, lead me in a different direction. Lead me in the path of life. Pray like your soul depends on it because when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. But those who endure, those who love God, will receive a crown of life. And second, you need to sing like your soul depends on it. Singing is a beautiful gift that God has given us to change our desires. Nothing so easily bypasses the intellect and gets straight to the heart as music and singing does. Martin Luther once said, The devil, the originator of sorrowful anxieties and restless troubles, Flees before the sound of music almost as much as before the word of God. Music is a gift and a grace of God, not an invention of men. Thus, it drives out the devil and makes people cheerful. Then one forgets all wrath and impurity and other devices. That's what God designed music to do. Music is a tool that God has given us to catch our hearts up with where our heads at. Right? You remember in the Gospels the man who cries to Jesus, "I believe, help my unbelief." Right? He's got it right here, but he's really struggling right here. And so, you need to sing. In a minute, we're going to stand and proclaim the excellencies and beauty of Christ through song. Do you sing in church, or do you just stand there like a muted toad? Your soul needs to sing. Psalm 150 is one of the shortest psalms in the whole Bible. It's only six verses. Every verse starts with a Hebrew peal imperative verb, which is just a, not just a command, but like a super command. It says, praise him, hallelujah, is is just the the Hebrew word there, right? And it ends with this, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. A better translation would be, everything that has breath must praise the Lord. If you refuse to sing, you're jeopardizing your soul. In Ephesians 5, Paul's giving instruction to the, the, the Christians in Ephesus there. And he says, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery. But where does he tell them to direct their hearts? Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Paul's answer to fighting against temptation is to sing. And that's incredible to me. And honestly, that deserves like it's an entire sermon series to to discuss this and lay this out. And so I'm just going to give you a minute here. Now take everything we've learned, make it very personal and applicable to you you're going to meditate over a line from the bridge of the song we're about to sing and you're going to take whatever that sin or temptation, those sins and temptations that you thought through a couple different times here and you're going to think about uh, how they kind of, how they intersect here. Temptation, faith, love, your affections. Listen to this. This should cause you to just, just beauty and glory and satisfaction and love dwell up in your heart when you hear words like this. Now my debt is paid. It is paid in full by the precious blood that my Jesus spilled. Now the curse of sin has no hold on me, whom the Son sets free, oh, is free indeed. And so before we stand, would you just sit in your seat right now and ask God to make Christ and what He has done for you beautiful and real to you? More beautiful, more real, more satisfying than the sin that so easily entangles you. Pray those words to God now. Ask him to transform your desire to see Jesus, his precious blood, and his love for you as more lovely and desirable than all the pleasures this world could offer. Ask him to make your sin ugly and disgusting in your eyes. Ask him at the point of desire where you're so often lured and enticed to sin to cause you to see the bait for what it really is, sin that leads to death. Plead with him to help you love him more and hate your sin more. Offer that prayer to the Lord now. If you're not a Christian, if you've you've never repented of your sin, believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and been baptized in his name, As a congregation stands to sing these beautiful words, these beautiful truths, we want you to know that this could be true of you too. All you need do is come and kneel before the throne of grace that Jesus sits on. Your debt can be paid in full. The curse of sin in your life can be broken. You can be free to love and enjoy God with all your heart, soul, and strength. When you're ready, would you please stand and join our musicians here? as we sing and praise our great high priest. Make these words beautiful to your eyes, to your soul. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.